0: longest recorded case of hiccups 68 years by an iowa farmer named charles osborne dude got married raised a family all the while dealing with hiccups so don't tell me you can't get out there and give it your best today (coughs) kill me 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 Could you imagine, man? That's insane. Evidently he got it when he was trying to lift a 350-pound hog onto a hook or something onto, uh, uh, when he was, uh, on this farm, and, uh, yeah, 68 years, um, died in 1991, um uh, they went away right before he died 68 years though and you know there's some really good runner up stories too there's um let me see dun, 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 dun. he said he's leaving he said he's got hiccups for 68 years um let's see 2007 a florida teenager Named Jennifer Me gained fame for hiccuping around 50 times per minute for more than five weeks. Whoa! Wow! That's almost two per second for five weeks. Five weeks. Uh, Christopher Sands of Britain hiccuped an estimated 10 million times in a 27-month period good lord from February 2007 to May 2009 Jesus his condition which meant that he could hardly eat or sleep was eventually discovered to be caused by a tumor on his brain stem man it was pushing on his nerves causing him to hiccup every 2 seconds 12 hours a day his hiccups stopped in 2009 following surgery Wow, so they're knocking this guy out on the table with anesthesia, and he's just going, hick, hick. man, that's wild." Well, anywho, I just thought that was fascinating. Um, so I did a deep dive last night. I got all excited. I don't know. I get on these weird random tangents and shit like that, you know, um, I have this, um, inherent need to just kind of bounce from subject to subject, and, um, and then I revive my excitement for the stuff that I talked about prior, so then it reignites, and it becomes this kind of vicious cycle, but uh, I've talked a lot about, um, just enigmatic types and weirdos and people outside the spectrum and uh, I just I think we all have kind of a interesting uh, fascination with people that kind of flaunt societal rules or well that do it gracefully anyway or that do it with real intent you know instead of just being just a complete bozo you know, because there's those guys, too, that just, they don't, they'll just, they're the quintessential square peg that'll never fit in a round hole ever, 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 no matter what they do. And it doesn't necessarily translate to any kind of innovation or, uh, you know, reassessment of, you know, what's important. But but the ones that, the ones that are uh that, that are it that make it applicable and make it interesting with real stakes are people like uh like I was fascinated by <laughs> i you know I never got into Bob Dylan, not that i 'm anti Bob Dylan, I think I like Bob Dylan and but I would probably like Bob Dylan if I had never even heard a song just by merely listening to, or reading about, kind of his, his own journey, you know, because I, I take it, you know, he was, or he is, or was this kind of folk singing troubadour of sorts, you know, this Woody Guthrie type, who, which is, which I guess would be his, would have been his uh mentor of sorts you know he was a big woody guthrie guy who was just this kind of wandering kind of acoustic guitar playing folk singing dude who was you know was into social kind of questioning social norms and and social revolt and uh yeah i mean we all know we all know we all have our own impression of Bob Dylan. We all know Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan is the guy that introduced weed to the Beatles. Um, he's the guy that went electric and pissed everybody, you know, all of his followers off. And that 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 kind of stuff I think is fascinating when you've got so much to lose but you don't care. And, But <laughs> the coup de grace, the fucking cherry on top, was when he won the Nobel Prize for Literature. This was when a couple years, a few years ago, 2016, 17, something like that, yeah, I want to say 16 or 17, he did, and he didn't show up for the prize, (laughs) he's like, like, they're like, hey, you won the most prestigious literary award uh, uh, in the world ever, historically, I'm good, I'm good, you know, you can mail it to me, you know, send it to my P.O. box, or whatever, that's it's like who get you know it's kind of like when I guess maybe when Marlon brando won uh the best actor for uh was godfather and he sent a representative of uh, the, uh the, and the Native American tribe that he was kind of you know uh de- or creating awareness of sent her up to the podium to say that uh, awards are bullshit and you're all bullshit Academy's bullshit, movies are bullshit everything's bullshit and that's kind of what Bob Dylan did he's kind of like give it a big f- fuck you like finger to the, you know Alfred Nobel and all his cronies which, whatever, okay um, that's pretty punk and that's pretty sick and I love it and, uh, <laughs> but they're like, you know, can you imagine us being up on the podium you're like, and the winner is Bob Dylan. And then nobody comes up right on. But, but shit like that is really, um, it, uh, can be, uh, it can be, there are some really good, like, I always kind of venture off into these weird movie uh, recommendations, and there's a movie that kind of epitomizes a lot of that, uh, not a lot of that, but uh, the essence of that, and it's kind of an obscure movie, which I I find fascinating that it as obscure as it was, and I don't know why, and I'm sure there's some kind of political or business reasons behind it, but this movie called, if you ever get a chance to watch The Big Picture with Kevin Bacon, it's so fucking good, Um, but it's about this dude, uh, this uh, filmmaker who just graduates from film school, and he kind of gets put through the process of trying to get his first film made which is his personal uh, they're always like some it's a personal thing you know i guess typically directors you know have there's a lot of personal uh investment uh you know maybe they write their own script and then they want to get it made and so they're comfortable with the material maybe or something anyway so the story goes you know he gets just gets put through the mill he just get he just goes from agent to agent and then <laughs> studio to studio and he's just facing just humiliation, rejection from each place until finally he just gives up and, uh, starts doing his own thing, uh, gets a job, just kind of shakes it off and then reinvents himself and becomes like, um, and then gains complete control. Until he finally gets to make his own... The movie he wanted to make. Which is a real clean version of probably the system itself. But it's... It's a fucking awesome movie. And it's funnier than shit. It's got... uh, uh, Michael McKeon who... Is... In um, Spinal Tap. So he... I imagine... It has the same kind of creative forces that started... It did Spinal Tap. Aside from say Rob Reiner, I think because I, I think Christopher Guest directed it. I think, who was the uh, the other lead in Spinal Tap, and then Michael McKeon, But um, what's his name? Harry Shearer is isn't in it, the the third member of Spinal Tap. But uh, fucking funny, f- kind of hilarious movie. A lot of people in it a lot of really good actors, um, Martin Short plays this crazy off-the-wall agent guy that just is so bizarre, and so good, Martin Short's kind of, he's a legend, but he's under, underrated for these performances that he gives and these strange cameos, these small roles that are just fucking, <laughs> so fucking funny, but, uh, but the bit yeah but the basic kind of thing is do what do what it is that you want to do and find a way to monetize that and 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 be successful off of that off of being what you want to do you know don't succumb and don't give into to some system and get yanked in and pulled in and then get just become you know Fodder for the mill, um, you know. If you have a real conviction of doing what you want, to, anyway. Blah blah blah. Yeah yeah yeah. All right, enough of that bullshit. But it's a great movie, and but it it's it's a clean, saran-wrapped kind of vision of what um, a lot of these guys like Bob Dylan did, and uh, people that the that were like these. Um, I don't know if renaissance man would be the proper term, but enigmatic certainly is something that could apply. Um... You know, because you look at, say, like... Uh, a guy like uh, Thomas Pynchon, the writer, who wrote this book, Inherent Vice, which they made a movie on, um which is one of the best, strangest movies I've ever... It's hard to watch, because it's so convoluted. But... um, uh, The the movie is... I'd say that the reputation for a movie like that pre... Uh, precedes itself with a reclusive type like Thomas Pinchon, who writes this book, Inherent Vice, which is about this guy, this kind of pothead detective, who pieces together kind of this strange crime in L.A., and it's kind of like if you watch Big Lebowski on acid. And and it's got Martin Short in it, who plays a strange and uh, <laughs> eccentric character, <laughs> you, again, but it's like, it's a little more of the darker version, it's a darker version, and I highly recommend it, but it's a darker vision of an eccentric, funny, strange, uh, I don't, it's like a crime novel on acid, which is a lot what Big Lebowski was, too, with that. I don't know, Big Lebowski was kind of, was like a, a loose adaptation of, like, The Big Sleep, like a, you know, Raymond Chandler-style kind of crime thriller, but wrapped in this pothead eccentric bowler who calls himself the Dude, the Dude of Buds, being very undude. But, um... But these guys, these guys that are behind the scenes, you know, that it, it, um creates this mm, this huge um i don't know this cool anticipatory uh experience right because of their because of their enigmatic reclusivity thomas pinchon uh bob uh, bob Di- yeah bob dylan's just he's just out there but um but those people to me are are, are are fascinating. Um I I started getting on this Leonard Cohen thing yesterday, who else I've I've it's another guy. Uh Leonard Cohen to me is like he's like the Canadian Bob Dylan. Um Bob Dylan called him the number one what did he call him? Uh the number one singer song or the number one the number one something to do with like the most compelling um, kind of enigmatic how did he put it it was perfectly it was perfectly expressed by what what Bob Dylan said he said let's see da 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 bum, bum, bum. Bob Dylan compared him to um oh, where is he moved to the United States to pursue a career as a folk music singer-songwriter during the 1960s. He was a fringe figure in Andy Warhol's Factory Crowd. Oh, interesting, yes. Um, Let's see. Yeah, just an interesting dude. Um, Robert Altman used his uh, songs in um, his movie McCabe and Mrs. Miller. You know, again... It all comes kind of full circle with Robert Altman and, uh, and uh, Andy Warhol and Bob Dylan and Andy Warhol and Bob Dylan and uh, okay. I wish I was more prepared for this. But um, he called. Oh, so. Uh, just a real fascinating figure. Kind of did his own thing. Kind of decided to do what he wanted to do. And then did it. And didn't give a fuck. where it took him, um, Jesus, he got a lot of, um, here he goes, okay, so, he's one of the most, okay, did, Cohen's overall career in popular music by asserting that he is, and in- keep in mind, this guy started as a poet, okay, and, um, which is a, pretty lateral transition into songwriting, if you know how to play an instrument. Um, most fascinating and enigmatic singer-songwriter of the late 60s, second only to Bob Dylan, and perhaps Paul Simon. Um, Bob Dylan was an admirer, describing Cohen as the number one songwriter of their time. Dylan described himself as number zero. <laughs> It's pretty cool. Uh, So Bob Dylan's knocking... Bob Dylan doesn't knock on anybody's door. And when he's giving you praise like that... I mean, say what you want about Bob Dylan. Think what you want about Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan doesn't give a fuck. But when Bob Dylan's going out of his way to address something about you, that's pretty cool. You know, that's something. Um... yeah Leonard Cohen so I was interested more so though in his stint as a a, a Zen Buddhist monk when he moved he lived up in um at the Mount Baldy Zen Center in the San Bernardino Mountains uh about 40 miles outside of LA uh from like 94 to like 99 for like 5 years and he was a practicing Buddhist monk um He's been kind of eulogized in Nirvana songs, you know, Penny Royalty, give me a Leonard Cohen Afterworld so I can sigh eternally. Um, you know, for somebody that's been so under the radar, he's got, he's got, he, he, he really had a lot of notoriety. That's something to be said. Somebody, somebody that, I don't know how much he disdained the public eye but he really was a very notorious figure for somebody that stayed under the radar like that. And particularly, he wasn't a vow of silence monk. Um, I watched some of the, there's some good YouTube footage of it uh, where they're walking in a row, chanting, making, you know, it wasn't a vow of silence type thing, but it was definitely a disciplinary uh, Buddhist monk monastery situation that you know, you take these vows and then you live by them. But he ended up leaving after five years. I think he, he got what he wanted out of it or got what he could. And, uh, but those guys aren't gonna be like, I don't know, you just, uh, it seems rare that they would just take some kind of singular path to, to the end to carry it through to, to, to finality. You know, he had other things going on and uh, much like Jesse Eitzler uh, when he was living with the monks um, I think Eitzler did it probably more so with fa- out of fascination or just kind of r- uh, reinvigor reinvigoration and so he sp- he told himself he'd spend two weeks the first day the first 20 minutes he was already kind of losing his mind but this is now in the days in, in the days of social media so, you know cell phones uh hyperactivity Eitzler is a entrepreneur he's a guy that ran a couple of different sh- different things at once you know his uh his uh commercial learjet business as well as coconut water yeah, he's part owner of the Atlanta Hawks and then just decides to kind of live with... Uh, I believe they were orth- the Russian Orthodox Jews. No, not Jews. Monks. Orth- Russian Orthodox monks in uh, upstate New York. Close to like, I think Buffalo or something like that. Uh, but they weren't a vow of silence type either. They were... Um, what was interesting was they were all uh, world-class German Shepherd trainers. That's how they... Because they had to, they had to uh, be sustainable and produce, uh, you know, something that would finance the, you know, when it comes down to it, you got to pay for your shit, even if you're a monk. And so these were world class German Shepherd trainers. So he stayed there. He he was he was about ready to bail. He was gonna he was gonna make a run for it after the first day, but he he, he you know, he legged it out and he made it to, I think it was two weeks he stayed up there but uh, but Leonard Cohen five years um, excuse me somebody that you know commanded big audiences for his music mm-hmm. and uh, kind of in essence was a rock star of sorts to degree and then just threw it all away. Not threw it all away, but just... Took a divergent path for five years. In a monastery. So that's pretty sick. You know? Just said, ah... I'm a little tired right now. I'm gonna take a little break. I'm gonna go up to this mountain and I'm gonna chant for five years. So... Those people are cool. I think it's strange, but it's weird. But... Yeah. Those types are just always I always thought that that kind of monastic stoicism also was uh, well it's hard to do and it it becomes exponentially harder you know the more advanced as a a society that we get because you're just uh, overwhelmed and overburdened with all these shiny new things all the time just coming at you in different directions Getting your attention. But, uh, so, so after that, I, uh, I don't know how I got on this guy again, man, but it never fails. I start reading about this dude, Malik, Terrence Malik, um, who is, I believe, I would have to say, is a certified genius. Um, he let's see where did, so he went to I mean just just from a standpoint just from an educational standpoint, he got a, a BA at Harvard, then went on to Oxford. Uh, and there was some kind of deal at Oxford where he got into a um, some kind of debate, a disagreement with a mentor or a professor or a teacher and he's like "ah fuck you I'm out later." So um born in Illinois, regular dude. Uh and then Harvard and then Oxford. So that's pretty much that's pretty much textbook like fucking genius territory. I well, okay, I shouldn't say it. Just because you go to Harvard, okay? But, walking away from an institution like Oxford takes take some balls. And then, and then, and then, to just start directing movies? Like, so, he, um, his first movie was Badlands with um, Martin Sheen. It was about the, the, uh, the guy Charles Starkweather, this, this guy from Nebraska that, just randomly, just started killing people. True story. And so he, he had, uh, he wrote the script for it, and then he helped finance it as well. Um, he raised some money, and then he got the studio to put up a little money, and then he, he. But he's such a trip, dude. This is like okay. So you go to these textbook, these buy the book, uh, what you consider to be these institutions like Harvard and Oxford that are just, like, principled in, like, okay, this is how it's going to be. This is how it is. This is how you be successful. You've pretty much created your ticket. Now go use it. And this guy threw that all... He's just like, fuck it. I'm going to go make movies. Um, and I'm going to do it my way. And he's so out... He's so fucking out there. Um, one one example of that is... Uh, this guy... Uh, I remember... I pulled up this interview with this guy, this Thomas Lennon, who's, uh, he's the guy that, um, he's in like Reno 911, and uh, I Love You Man, He plays, he's kind of an up, he, he looks like a, uh, he looks like he'd be, um, he plays like the, uh, the gay guy in I Love You Man, who's like, um, you know, really well dressed, fit, and uh, very well spoken which is who who this guy is but somehow okay so when so when Malik was making this movie Night of Cups um first of all Malik should have stopped after this third movie cuz that's he created this air of air of of, of like uh, you know this again it's this enig- enigmatic kind of Presence, you know, it's like, what's 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 with this guy? For one, why does he only want to shoot at dusk? Not at dusk, but like when the natural colors, when the sun, that that natural light, era time of the day, when it's like six o'clock and the sun's just blazing across the the horizon and creating this voluminous natural light. He, that's what he his first two films were were, were basically bathed in that just all, all this huge natural light. Cause he had, you know, he's very, um, again, very off the cuff type instinctual, uh, here's the script. If anybody needs it, I'm going to throw it right in the garbage. Don't worry about this. Do what you feel. If you don't feel it today, that's cool, man. That's cool, man. Uh, so he gets, so he, uh, so he made, um, Badlands, then he made Days of, Days of Heaven with Sam Shepard and Richard Gere which, both of which are considered to be, uh, by you know, various uh, film institutes to be two of the top 50 movies ever made okay and then he went on a 20 year hiatus and then he came back and did Thin Red Line with Sean Penn and, um and, uh uh, you know Woody Harrelson and uh, Adrian Brody and Jim Cavazil and you know these monumental uh, again. It's like the, the you know, people that are coming out of the woodwork to to work for this guy for virtually nothing, if anything, to get paid. You know, not concerned whether they get paid or not. They just want to work with this guy because he's so out there. Because he's so out there, right? And and, and so so if he would made those three, that would have been just like wow but that's not how things work, right? Okay, so it's like Thomas Pinchon, you know? Now, after Thomas Pinchon started with, uh, his first book was, uh, was V, was it V? Yeah, which uh, is, by itself is a, oh, it's a hard one. Then Gravity's Rainbow, which is, everyone started, nobody's finished a lot like James Joyce's Ulysses and then Crying a Lot 49 which is, I read that in college good mo- good book, I didn't uh, didn't grasp it right away nor, nor should you, nor will you and then if he'd have stopped there he'd have been just this uh, the ultimate mystery man, right? but something creeps into these guys' skulls and they're like Ah, I got more in me, I got more to do, I got more to say, I got more to write, I got more to film, I got more to see. So they creep back into the fold, and then they start writing stuff like Inherent Vice, Vineland. Vineland was really good. Vineland is more, uh, Thomas Pichon's Vineland, I think it takes place up in uh, Humboldt County, if I remember, um, or Mendocino County, Or, but it's fast, It's, uh, but it's more digestible than say gravity's rainbow right but uh so you go back to this guy okay so you go back to uh old fucking terence malik here um he creeps his way back into the woodwork after 98 that was that was thin red line okay so after a 20 year hiatus he he busts out thin red line okay again one of the best movies ever you know ranked but in the top 50 of all time you know he just has his snack. his first three films right of which the third one is made after a 20-year hiatus so then he he works way back to the fold and he starts making these other movies like uh to the wonder which was autobiographical and then tree of life which is this uh i guess i guess it's f- pretty phenomenal stuff Um, Tree Life has Brad Pitt. It won the Palme d'Or, the best picture at Cannes Film Festival. But it kind of goes on this huge... From what I gather... And uh, I know it probably sounds like I'm full of shit. Because I probably am. But it really takes on this kind of 2001 Space Odyssey epic where he goes off on this strange nature tangent where you just have these long... Episodes of just sweeping, uh, uh, sweeping um, segments of just raw nature and uh, you know the natural world and and and, and these are themes that, are, that he explores in his in his movies. But uh, I think that was ranked one of the top fifty. You know, he's got like forty-nine of the top fifty movies of all time. Okay, so the dude, he's and, but eat but each. and and naturally each production well particularly the first two um, Badlands and Days of Heaven were uh, you know halfway through like a lot of the crew was quitting they're like fuck this guy like I don't get it like they didn't quite understand his kind of outside the box type you know his thinking and and the way he he would only shoot certain times of the day and again if it didn't work just ah it's cool Don't, don't trip but so he f- uh so about four five years ago i was hanging out with my buddy eric and we decided to watch this movie night of cups and uh which is this movie with again everybody in hollywood like literally pretty much everybody in hollywood was in this movie uh but the main protagonist was this was uh, christian slater who um who's <laughs> another good interview, uh, if you particularly there's one about him talking about the process of making that movie or Terrence Malick's process, right? And he's like, uh, I don't. know It's funny. It's uh, he just has a very British take on things, and it's very. But you know he wants to say more, but he just he's kind of like, ah, oh, it's great, isn't it? Isn't it? <laughs> Like, that's it like just describing like uh, i don't know holding back cuz cuz you could just really answer a lot of that with stream of consciousness feedback that 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 these guys have experienced like getting back to this guy Thomas Lennon Thomas Lennon was by now you probably can recall the guy in 9 he's the guy in Reno 911 who wears like those tiny shorts he's one of the cops who wears the tiny shorts has a mustache um, anyway for whatever reason uh, even unclear to himself Malik wanted to cast him in this movie Night of Cups which is really just a stream of con- it's the whole thing is just a stream of consciousness kind of cinema cinema gra- cinema-, gra- cinema cinematic c- overly saturated cinematic Photographic, if that's a word if it isn't i just made it up and i'm trademarking it cinematographic cinematograph cinematographic but cinematic but it's just saturated cinematic saturated just stream of consciousness like movie with like literally literally everybody Antonio Banderas, Christian Slater, Kate Blanchett fucking just goes on and 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 on. But... So Tom... But the best... I think the story that encapsulates it all is this guy, Thomas Lennon, who casted as a role for some chatty kind of movie writer, uptight movie writer, something to that effect. He's like, oh, okay, yeah, that's me, that's me. And um, so on the set, as they're getting ready for the scene, like, Malik comes out, he starts handing out these index cards to each each of the, you know, the characters in this particular scene this particular day of shooting they each get an index card and he looks at his index card and on the index card it's got one line on it it's got one sentence it says all it says is there are no such thing as fireproof walls and he's looking at this like uh, is this my line or is this my you know what is is this is this what I'm supposed to say and Malik's just like I don't know is it (laughs) <laughs> he just like action. So that fucking shit is like to me boy you really have a lot of faith in balls in you know, the strength of your or the command of your abilities and what you wanna get out of each. Performer, right, and so he went on to say, like they went through LA and filmed about eleven hours of of footage, and uh, but in the end, he uh, in the end, it was it was um, all he all he was all he was in was about a sentence and a half of dialogue in the final cut of the movie after filming eleven hours of footage. That's like. <laughs> So it's good that, uh, so, so Christian Bale, you know, he puts it eloquently and poignantly where you could be, if you're in a Terrence Malick movie and you go through that process, you could be, you don't know by the end of the movie, you could be the lead or you might not even be in it. (laughs) Like, that's fucking incredible. Take think that's something like Christian Slater... Who's like... Um, who's notorious for being like... That that guy... That... Uh, what do you call it? A meth, Kind of a method... Maybe a method... You know... Um, one of those deals... Where he's like... Doesn't break character... The whole... The whole time... You know... He's one of those guys... And... Uh, so for him to say like... By the end of the... Editing process you might be the lead or you might not be in it is fucking <laughs> but that's that is uh, I don't know from a layman's point my own perspective I would say that's what that's really what great art is it, uh, great art ends up creating more questions than it answers you know it dares you to think so cause uh, yeah Malick's films. is a uh, they explore themes like transcendence nature conflicts between reason and instinct you know that goes back to like badlands reason and instinct because this guy charles starkweather who uh doesn't go by the name in the movie but martin sheen is this 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 kind of mass murderer type who is probably struggling between the reason and the instinct to do what he's doing but they're typically marked by big broad philosophical and spiritual overtones like that's where you know the overview of like these big natural shots these long wavy shots of like wheat fields and you know this natural the sun sunny natural natural light that's just splashing into each frame uh as well as the use of like uh, these meditative voiceovers from uh each of the characters but the stylistic elements of the the guy's work have inspired like really divided opinions among a lot of uh, film scholars and audiences um, you know some say his films well they really give him a, a you know they really are in awe of the cinematography and the aesthetics of course but others found like lack in plot and character development and that, and that but that that's where that's where he gives you... That's where he gives you that slow burn. He doesn't... He doesn't force feed you what's what he's trying to... Say if he's trying to say anything. He's trying to... He's trying to... Treat you like an adult. He's trying to treat you like... He's giving you respect... By allowing you to form your own... Take. Right? Does that make sense? Um you're gonna take from it what you take from it so why why set in stone you know the characters you know perspective when anyway but that's also you know if you look at it i mean he splits the crowd uh he and that's you know he creates debate by splitting the crowd like like any like a successful politician, you know, like these motherfuckers, these fucking soulless scumbag politicians that you know united we stand divided we fall. But they divide the fuck out of everybody, don't they? Most politicians do, and they do that deliberately to create debate for distraction, right? But for their but for their own ends. The distraction is is to keep us stupid, right? It's like when the English kept everybody drunk in the sixteen hundreds, and it banned caffeine, banned coffee because that would that would awaken your senses and keep you, you know, and start making you uh, understand that you're being fucked. But uh, so so you got to give it give it up for a guy like Malik who... <clears throat> when he splits his crowds, she de- it's i would think it's very deliberate. I think he's a genius. And uh but that creates the debate. That's like Banksy, you know, when he's you know Banksy doesn't do anything in museum. You know, the first thing that Ban- I think the first thing Banksy did was he glued his own work. He walked into like the Tate Gallery or something in London. And just glued his own work to the wall, <laughs> you know. But it was some off the wall. It was like a picture of a monkey or something, right? A stenciled picture of a monkey or something. I can't, I can't recall offhand. But, uh, but aside from that, I, you know, museums are places where stuff goes to die, much like zoos. You know, animals don't want to be in the zoo. It's the saddest thing in the world to see a polar bear in a zoo in San Diego, right? Or like, um, like this aquarium in Folsom that has, uh, you know, all this cool underwater shit. And then they've got at the end of the the whole tour is a couple of uh, kookaburras, a fu- two fucking kookaburras, sitting in a fucking mall in Folsom, nowhere near their natural habitat. They're just in a big cage, you know. They wanna they wanna be in Australia. They wanna be. Making their cuckoo noises. Hoo, hoo, hoo. <laughs> it's the greatest noise in the world. But man, when you hear it in, inside of a mall in Folsom, it's just sad. But yeah, so art. You know, Banksy's got all of his shit. That's why all the stuff's out outside. That's why all these street artists, these you know, these graffiti artists. You know, like uh, Shepard Fairey and. Banksy and these guys Uh, everything's outside because it's for the people and um, it's antithetical to put shit like that in a museum you know so it can be like so it can be sterilized and uh, you know controlled and uh, given to you in doses you know but anyway yeah so Malik uh, anyway I just love that he just, you know, he also just, he just immediately just throws the script in the garbage, like, here you go, if anybody needs this, it'll be here, that to me is pure irreverence, and, uh, it's, it's, it's that, yeah, his movies, like great art, it's like that it's a slow burn, you, you don't recognize it right away, but that's what you I think that's what you want is a slow burn you want that you want you want to go to that italian joint that just serves you a simple plate of flounder that is cooked with lemon and is seasoned by only the sea salt like the salt that still remains in the fish from the sea and then It's so unadorned, maybe a sprig of arugula, but when you bite into that, it slowly just starts to manifest itself into what it, ultimate, uh, to its ultimate expression, right? Instead of just be Force-fed, super-sized, triple-decker burger with everything, jalapenos and fucking queso sauce and fucking all this shit that's just like, you know, it's designed to fucking shortwire your senses, right? But you take a simple piece of fish, not even cooked by, you know, by flames by just mere lemon and, and and seasoned by its own natural salt that that's, that it's been swimming around in in the sea in the ocean in the Mediterranean Sea for years and then you understand you don't get it right away but it's like that joke it's like that joke at that that comedy club that you may have laughed while you're there while you're sitting there and, but you but you laughed maybe only for the moment because of the momentum of the of the situation but you didn't quite get it until later on that night and then it hit you that slow burn you know that's the good that's the good stuff that's the good stuff. That's when you got a good movie, you know? Or a good joke. Or a good film. A good piece of art. You know, a good painting. I mean, Jesus. You take a guy like Van Gogh. He sold one painting his whole life. And that was to his brother, Theo. It probably wasn't... <laughs> it wasn't... You know? You just... It... Nobody... Nobody got it. You don't want to get it. You almost don't want to get it, you know? Don't be pretentious. Don't walk into, like, fucking... Don't walk into, like, Independence Day or Men in Black and go, I don't get it. Because then you're just a moron, you know? Because you get it. They're telling you. They're telling you what's... They are directing you to think. But... The enigmatic... The enigmatic... Guy... The director, the artist—you know, these these eccentric weirdo, kooks, psychos—Terrence Malik, Sam Peckinpah—they've just got they 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 got this thing inside them that they have to just get out, you know. And with very little, uh, very little credence to as to. Um, what the end result will be because it it could be the end result to a great film or work of art or painting is what you think it is and then even that'll change over time so anyway I wanted to drop one more on you today I wanted to talk about some bullshit and I feel like I've achieved that and um, I droned on long enough but I got what I wanted out of this and uh, so I'll be starting my Mount Baldy tour here next month when I head down south I'm gonna go through Death Valley I'm gonna stay uh, out by Deep Springs College Gonna hike around. Then I'm gonna go through Victorville and up the backside of San Bernardino Mountains and drop on in to Mount Baldy Zen Center and see what's up with them. See what's up with them monks. Hey hey, we're the monks. <laughs> People say we're monkey around. Alright, that's enough for that. I'll talk at y'all later. Um hopefully I didn't bore you to tears, but arrived at you, babies.